This episode of This Changes Everything is presented by the Crosscut Festival, May 3rd through the 8th, online and in Seattle. Four down 79, copy and route. Four down 79, clear, UTL. This is Dandy. My name is Elise Kolauer. I go by Dandy. I'm a crisis counselor with CAHOOTS. CAHOOTS stands for Crisis Assistance Helping Out on the Streets. It's a program run out of the White Bird Clinic, a nonprofit health service based in Eugene, Oregon. What are we looking for? <laughs> We're looking for a white female uh, wearing black shorts and a hoodie. And CAHOOTS is one of the few long-standing independent crisis response operations in the whole country that isn't police. We're really like a multi-tool of public safety. Um, you know, we, we handle the majority of, of the mental health crises calls that are coming through. Um, that could be suicidal ideation. It could be, you know, really profound crippling anxiety, um, you know, depression. And this is Tim. My name's Tim Black. I head up our consulting and outreach for Cahoots and Whitebird Clinic. In Eugene and Springfield, Oregon, Cahoots staffers are the people who respond to those so-called crisis calls. The ones we were talking about in the last couple episodes with Crosscut staff reporter David Croman. Just somebody is in a really bad way. Emergencies that, in other places, police officers would usually respond to. Crises relating to mental health or the complications of poverty. Nothing criminal. Yeah, suicide's a big one for us. Um, Acute symptoms related maybe to, um, you know, somebody who's experiencing symptoms of schizophrenia. We kind of have a reputation for being a service for the homeless because that's what people see us do out they see us downtown scooping someone off the sidewalk that's, you know, drunk and needs to go to the sobering house. We respond to issues related to addiction, helping folks get connected to detox and sobering. But a lot of our calls are, uh, you know, house calls. We're going to people's houses. We're going to family conflict. Uh, we're doing welfare checks. You know, someone hasn't heard from grandma in a week or two. Um, or people call for themselves. They're just really upset. Maybe they're having a panic attack and they want... Um, someone to talk to, or maybe they need to go to the hospital, but they aren't sure if they are safe to drive or take the bus, and we can offer them a ride. We also do a lot of non-emergency medical care, first aid, you know, just kind of checking on folks. Yeah, response to somebody making a Facebook post and and someone being worried about them. And uh, you know, really, um, <laughs> is if there's if there's not a crime, you know actively being committed, nothing's on fire, and there's not a heart attack, there's a good chance that, that you know, dispatch is really going to try and find a way to, to justify sending cahoots into that situation. The organization does operate in partnership with police. Cahoots is built into the local 911 dispatch system, and calls are triaged so cahoots can answer the calls that are appropriate for them. Are we looking for a needle here? Is that what we're doing? Yeah. We are diverting from our counseling call to assist patrol at the Dairy Mart. There's always one medic, like a nurse or an EMT, and one counselor. The sound you're hearing, Dandy recorded from a recent shift with a colleague, EMT Dan Phelps. Yeah, I'm not sure what side of the building. They ride around, two at a time, in a big white van. And no one is armed. Take a look. And so the stuff that the country is talking about more and more right now, about police, about what police do and whether they should be doing it, it's something Kahoot staffers have been talking about for years, decades actually. I think that police are not well-trained necessarily to deal with mental health crises and that's not their job. 
frankly. Like, their job is law enforcement. And things that people call the police for are not always legal matters. Oftentimes they're civil matters and police will come out to some, you know, intense family scene and the family is like, we need help. And the police officers are like, well, sorry, there's no criminal act here. We can't, we can't do anything for you. And so, you know, family conflict, family disputes are something we do a lot of too. And being able to support people, offer mediation on the scene, offer a container for people to process difficult emotions. I, I really still struggle to answer fully why it is that officers, you know, police are, are the default resource that we're sending out for these situations where there's not a crime being committed and there's not a need for enforcement. Our underlying, you know, philosophy is that when you're in a crisis, you don't deserve to have police show up, right? You know, that we don't, we, we want to send the right resources to the right situations. Uh, and that means that uh, we shouldn't be sending enforcement in when what you need is resolution. Um, you know, we don't, you don't take a hammer to go wash the dishes. And and so what we're talking about is, is you know, leaving that hammer in the toolbox and grabbing a sponge and some soap, because that's what you really need in that moment. I'm Sarah Bernard, and this is This Changes Everything, a podcast from Crosscut about the new normal. And part of that new normal, seriously, is the interest in cahoots. A small program in a mid-sized college town on the West Coast has now got the attention of cities across North America. From the San Francisco Bay Area, to Iowa City, to Evanston, Illinois, to Victoria, BC, to Toronto, and maybe not too surprisingly, Seattle. So that's why today I'm announcing that I'm gonna be putting forward a proviso on our summer budget requesting that the executive develop and quickly scale up a Seattle-King County version of Eugene, Oregon's program, Crisis Assistance Helping Out on the Streets, or CAHOOTS. Since the death of George Floyd and this fresh debate over the role of police, there's been so much attention on CAHOOTS, which can feel strange, not least to the staff who run the program. And I think the first couple of weeks we were getting, you know, 100 emails a week. Uh, just, you know, from different communities across North America asking about this. But the truth is, it is one of the very few scaled-up alternatives to police out there for first response. And it's been around for so long that often if you find any other program like it, like, for instance, the one that recently popped up in Denver, that program was usually inspired and informed, and sometimes even trained, by CAHOOTS. So CAHOOTS represents, for a lot of people right now, a really concrete way to think differently about public safety. A way to actually avoid defaulting to police for all kinds of social issues. A way to help people, to avoid bad outcomes, to save money even. But of course, this one little piece in the puzzle can't solve everything. Stay with us. So Tim told me a little bit about how it all started. Eugene is a is a liberal college town, right? You know, we're on the I-5 corridor, straight shot from the Bay Area up to Canada. And in the 70s, we were experiencing, you know, ex- actually, you know, in the late 60s even, um, we were experiencing a lot of the same issues that larger communities like, you know, LA, San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, uh, we're all seeing, you know, that, that, that summer of love, right? That counterculture movement. Was, was really hitting Eugene hard. And that meant that, um, you know, alongside that, that kind of cultural revolution, there were also, you know, an increase in communities related to mental health, you know, poverty and addiction. You had a stigmatized, discriminated against population because you didn't like how they looked, you didn't like what they did, you didn't like 
fact that they were taking drugs. And our founders were really trying to figure out, you know, what are some other models? What are some other communities doing to really respond in a better way? And um, saw a lot of potential with what was happening down in San Francisco with the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic. That's when I first said healthcare is a right, not a privilege. May 1967, that became the founding slogan of the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic. This, by the way, is Dr. David Smith, founder of the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic, speaking as part of a documentary made for UCSF, his alma mater. You know, our, our founders went down, spent some time with Dr. Smith, you know, really, really learned the ins and outs of that approach. You know, why the Free Clinic was, you know, was operating the way they were and, and how that model could really be effective. And the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic inspired the creation of hundreds of other clinics like it around the country, including Whitebird and Eugene. Coming back up to Eugene, we chose to operate a, a crisis line in addition to that, that, that walk-in facility where folks could go. And that, that phone number that folks were calling in 1970, that's the same phone number that you call today to talk to Whitebird Crisis. Uh, you know, we haven't, we haven't stopped answering the crisis line in 50 years. In other words, Tim says, even though Cahoots has officially been around since 1989, it has a much longer history than that. As soon as that phone started ringing, uh, we were hearing about these situations going on in the community, you know, crises that folks were experiencing, um, you know, in which there were barriers to them being the one to talk to us on the phone or, you know, crises that were preventing them from actually coming into our facility to receive services. Uh, and there is this profound need you know, really early on for us to have some sort of community-based crisis response. And, you know, kind of using the vernacular of the time, if you were experiencing such a profound bummer, you know, that you couldn't use the phone or uh, make it into the clinic, you deserve to have somebody who could come and meet you where you're at. And so Wiper Clinic started to operate what we called the Bummer Squad. You know, it was a group of volunteers using personal vehicles, handful of first aid supplies and a, you know, brown paper bag in their trunk. And they would go out and talk to folks, you know, literally meeting them where they were at out in the community. And while we were really building up what the Bummer Squad looked like, Whitebird Clinic was also really kind of building out its services and really extending its reach in the community and had become a destination for law enforcement to bring folks when they're in crisis. Um, so, you know, so we're really kind of tinkering with mobile crisis models that integrated healthcare approach through the Bummer Squad at the same time that public safety was really seeing Wiper Clinic as a viable partner in community policing initiatives. Um, when some grant funding became available in the late 80s, it was a natural fit for Eugene Police Department to say, hey, Whitebird Clinic, let's talk about how we can work together. Um, you know, it was that partnership that we were able to form with the police department that allowed us on the 4th of July in 89 to go out in a retired ambulance with the Wiper Clinic logo on it and a couple of just old, you know, beat up police radios to receive dispatch calls. Um, you know, we started off going, what was it, 4 p.m. to midnight, five days a week. And now we're, you know, this behemoth serving the Eugene Springfield metro area with 60 service hours per day. And they're doing a lot. Whitebird Clinic says that in 2019, Cahoots diverted 17 percent of 911 calls away from police. And out of those roughly 24,000 calls, staffers radioed for police backup just 250 times. That's about 1% of the time. But, and this is a big but, Cahoots is not taking calls where there's a weapon present. They're also not taking life-threatening emergency calls, the ones that need a medical response in the next few minutes. We respond as best we can within an hour, that's what we say. Obviously, we like to be able to get there as soon as possible, but sometimes we get backed up. We have several calls holding, and we aren't able to respond as fast as we'd like to. So far, about half of Cahoots' budget comes through the city of Eugene's police department. 
The rest in grants and donations. The program is estimated to save the region some $8 million in police costs and $14 million in ambulance and emergency room costs every year. What'd you think of that call, Dan? Still, one of the reasons it saves money could be that Kahoot staffers are not paid nearly so well as police. A starting hourly wage for a police officer in Eugene is at least 30% more than a Kahoot staffer. Employee retention is another challenge. Um, a lot of the media recently has been kind of touting us as a cheap alternative to the police, um, as a cost-saving measure, but all of the employees are like, but we're really underpaid and we're having yeah. trouble with retention because we're not able to be take, this isn't a career job and we don't have full benefits and like there's so much more you could do to treat the staff, the line staff better. It is possible this could change as the program expands amid all this new attention. But who knows? It's kind of a bigger issue in general, the fact that people who do social work are often paid way less than other kinds of public servants. Daniel Malone, executive director of DESC in Seattle, who you heard from in the last couple episodes, really echoes Dandy on this. He says one of the biggest barriers he sees to creating something like Cahoots in Seattle is just getting enough qualified people on board to be able to be a scaled-up first response program. So there is right now a huge mismatch between uh, the way social workers are compensated for their jobs, for doing their jobs, and other people doing public service work. Um, teachers and firefighters and cops are much better compensated and can, you know, kind of live regular middle-class lives on the um, wages and benefits that they get. And social workers are nowhere close to that. In order to ensure that enough people will choose that kind of work and be able to stay in that kind of work as their lives go on and their, you know, personal situations produce new demands on them financially, um, we need to think of those kinds of positions like we think of um, some of these other folks that have an orientation toward public service. The rainy night that Dandy recorded bits of a 12-hour shift EMT Dan Feltz pointed out that, yeah, this is a pretty unique and important service to provide people. That is one thing I do, like, absolutely love, 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 love about my job is that we have eliminated the barriers to mental health care. And, you know, it can be the most, you know, the darkest, crappiest, cruddiest, saddest, most tragic night of your life. And you can get, you know, a, a counselor and a medic to show up for free It is crisis response, but Kahoot staff tend to take time with each call. Police are often in a hurry to get to the next call, and we like to take our time with our clients, make sure they get the time that they need. And then the other thing we bring to a scene is de-escalation training, and that includes emotional validation, what you know, validating what someone's experiencing, not trying to immediately fix a problem. They're not cops. They don't look like cops. When Cahoots teams are arriving on scene, we're not coming with a badge and a gun, handcuffs and a taser, right? You know, we are unarmed civilian first responders. Our body language is different. We're 
able to kneel down in what we call the empathy squat. Uh, police are required to to stand at the ready. Um, you know, that's part of their training. And they don't have the same authority as cops or the same obligations. Our, our program is voluntary. You know, we offer people transport, but we don't force anybody. That helps build trust. It also kind of inherently helps de-escalate things. Sometimes when we get on the scene and, and someone tells us, go away, I don't want to talk, us walking away and not trying to interrogate them allows them to have trust with us for next time, you know, because they know that they have the power to disregard us if they don't want to talk to us. I can think of, you know, a few different situations where that that physical aggression we were starting to see went away when he said, okay, you know, all right, we hear you. I'm going to give you a bottle of water here on the curb if you want it. Great. You know, but, you know, we'll see you later. I hope you give us a call next time you need us, you know. And, and it was that, like, recognition that they had autonomy, um, you know, almost almost really kind of granting that person that, that opportunity to really be a self-advocate, even if it's just, just say no, that can be really empowering. Of course, as certified crisis responders, CAHOOT staff do sometimes have some clear responsibilities, such as getting someone to the hospital if they're in immediate danger. There are situations where I have a professional and a legal liability to get someone to the hospital, whether or not they want to go. And so those are the hard calls for me where I have to call for police to to kind of pry someone into making that decision. Um, and I always give them a warning. You know, I always say, like, if you don't come with me, like, I need to call for backup because I've seen enough concerning evidence that makes me think, you know, you need to go somewhere and get professional help right now. And those are really hard. Um, but when, you know, I remember one specific story that I, I had to call police for backup and felt so bad about it. But later on, I ran into that that woman and she thanked me. You know, she, she recognized me on the street and she was like, I'm doing so much better now and I'm so grateful that you guys helped me out. We'll be right back. This last year has changed the way we talk about race, policing, public health, politics, the climate, the arts, and the economy. And in many ways, it's changed how we talk to one another. But it hasn't stopped the conversation. This spring, the Crosscut Festival will keep that conversation going, with a week of events where journalists, politicians, artists, and newsmakers will talk about our uncertain present and our possible future. We'll explore the issues that are shaping our country and our world. This year's guests include PBS NewsHour anchor Judy Woodruff, travel expert Rick Steves, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, former Secretary of Labor Robert Reich, and many more who will be announced on March 8th. Join us at the Crosscut Festival, May 3rd through the 8th. For more information and to purchase tickets, go to crosscut.com slash festival. Okay, back to the show. So a lot of people wonder how this can work out so well. 
Like, say, anyone who thinks about that time in 2005 in Kitsap County when a social worker was stabbed by someone in mental health crisis. A social worker went into an apartment for somebody going through a crisis, and the person ended up stabbing that social worker to death. How is it that Kahoot staff can go into these uncertain situations and be so certain that they'll be okay? You know, we hear a lot of, you know, a lot of that othering and a lot of that perception of of danger, you know, and this fear that if we send somebody who's not the police into these situations, that they're just going to be, you know, killed and injured. You know, it seems like every other city we talk to, they they want to know how many of our staff have been seriously hurt. And, and they are, you know, astonished when we tell them that we've never had somebody seriously injured as a result of patient contact. Um, I, was, I was able to panel with Joel Morrow from um, the San Antonio Police Department. And, you know, we were both asked that question around how do you address safety with this response? And, he, you know, he's a cop, right? He works for a mental health unit. You know, he's got that HBO documentary. No one calls us to give us good news. They call us because something bad is happening, and so they're in a crisis. And he even pointed out, he said, you know, my, his response to officers is, how often have you been shot and stabbed when you've gone out on a mental health call? And when they say, well, it's never happened, he said, okay, so why do you think it's going to happen if you send somebody different in? And so if someone is actively, you know, in danger or attacking us, we can call for backup and police will be there very fast. And it's very, very rare because we don't come in with a, with a gun or that presumption of being able to take someone's power away. Police are trained for uh, encountering violence because people react strongly to that. So for us, it's really rare that we feel scared or endangered. And so we don't, we don't need to carry a weapon for self-defense. In the situations where, you know, I personally felt that that lack of safety or, or was really worried those were generally situations where I wasn't paying attention to, you know, the full the full details, right? That I, I wasn't maintaining the situational awareness that I really should have had. Um, maybe I was doing something that was informing, you know, a patient's perception that um, they didn't have, you know, uh, the avenue to exit. One situation that I can think of, I was blocking the doorway uh, and, the, and the patient became escalated. And in reflection on that moment, they felt trapped in that room because I was an obstacle between them and the door. You know, I'm, I'm not tall, but I'm, you know, I'm male, you know, I have a beard and, and that, that can be, that can be triggering for some folks. And so when we take that moment to really recognize the potential triggers um, and how our nonverbal interactions can really inform that sense of safety, we're able to really, you know, diffuse those situations. We're trained to watch for posturing. Um, with uh, most people will posture before they get aggressive. They'll give you a warning, like, I don't want to talk to you. I don't want you near me. Get out of my space. And we respond to that. One key factor here, of course, is effective triage. Cahoots is not getting sent to the acute situations that police officers with guns are sent to. What, what Cahoots is able to do falls a lot more on the side of prevention, where, you know, because we can respond to situations as they're emerging, uh, before they've really, you know, hit a 10 out of 10, you know, we're coming in when it's a four or five out of 10, right? But staffers will also say that the hybrid model, where mental health professionals are sent out with police, as it happens right now in Seattle sometimes, has its own limitations. You know, we, we have heard anecdotally at times that those co-response programs end up with social workers who have a bias in favor of law enforcement. Uh, you know, that because inherently, you know, you're working with officers day in and day out, you got to be able to sit in the patrol car with them for your whole shift you know, it's it's logical to assume that in order to get through your day that you're going to start to develop some, you know, some bias there. 
Um, you know, we, we also need to recognize that um, if, if you are a member of a community who's experienced adversity with law enforcement, how open are you going to be with that social worker if that police officer is sitting in your living room with them? Or if you know, if you watch that social worker in plain clothes get out of that marked police car, you know, there's, there's, we're still asking police on some level to be involved in these situations that, that they don't need to be in the middle of. Tim and Dandy might make this work sound easy. It's not easy by any means. There's certain certain things I'll never forget. Like the thing, you can't unsee things, and you can't unhear things. Um, and so there's definitely some secondary trauma that we all that we all deal with. I don't know. Speaking for myself, and also I think a majority of people on the Cahoots team, we we end up here one way or another. Um, to work through our own trauma. My coworkers that cope the best all have really significant social support um, like outside of the workplace. I think that's really, really important. And one of the saddest parts for me of my job is seeing how many people don't have that, are lonely, don't have the resilience to bounce back after something bad happens. Yeah, and they say when we're training, one of the first things they say is whatever dark things in your past, whatever trauma you have, it's going to walk through that door. You know, it, it's going to hit you real hard when you first start doing this work. My uh, dear friend committed suicide in 2014, and it had a really big impact on my life. I've had a few family members that have been impacted by addiction, you know, and mental health. Um, and, you know, it always kind of seemed like this thing that wasn't talked about. You know, there was there was a lot of kind of tucking it under the rug, right? You know, um, and um, I also remember really kind of being disappointed that there weren't opportunities for us to talk about how we were feeling, you know, or about how those family members were impacting us. Um, and... You know, I, I think that I saw I saw the impacts of avoiding those topics. And so I think maybe it's that that experience of seeing my family members, you know, the, the, the death of a cousin um, that that really, um, you know, gave me this maybe the kick in the pants that I needed to, you know, to kind of move from that maybe slightly more comfortable space of, of working in shelters and, and really get out into the middle of the suffering and, you know, get out into the middle of the systems change that, you know, that CAHOOTS really represents. Still, it's not a cure-all. For all the constant and kind of overwhelming attention on CAHOOTS right now, Tim and Dandy say expectations are a little high. There's this really big assumption, even here in Eugene and Springfield, that just because CAHOOTS has shown up, that things are going to be resolved. I think that we are not equipped to handle the number of shelter crises calls that we get because we don't have shelters to direct people to. All the local shelters are full. Wait lists uh, for supportive housing are anywhere from three months to three years long. Yeah, it oftentimes feels like all we do is tell someone sorry and yeah, this sucks, but you know, here's a tarp and some food and good luck. 
And, you know, all these other cities are really looking to, you know, cahoots right now is this Band-Aid, right? Because they want to have that thing that looks good and says, look, you know, you please aren't responding to these situations. But we're still going to end up really being a part of that same machine of, of oppression by cycling through, you know, folks through criminal legal involvement, taking them to the emergency room for medical bills they can't afford if there aren't other resources to get folks connected to, right? You know, I mentioned earlier that we're responding to crises because needs have gone unmet, and to really be able to address those crises, there needs to be, there need to be resources in the community to address those needs. In a lot of places, like Seattle, like Eugene, there are those resources. It's just those unmet needs are so vast. You know, by the time we end up on some of these calls, it just feels, you know, like it's way too little too late and as we talk about and think about things like defunding the police um i think you know the best way to think about it is is yeah redistribution and making sure that there are robust social supports throughout the development of you know new human life that's really how we make the biggest impact in society not necessarily responding after someone's gone through life completely under-supported and finds themselves in a moment of crisis. Of course, what a lot of people uh, rightly point out, I believe... This, again, is Daniel Malone. ...is that if we treated people better in our society, we'd have a whole lot fewer incidents that you know, today result in a police call. Yeah, there are way bigger issues here. Huge, complicated societal problems that police or any kind of crisis responder are not going to be able to clean up. And replicating cahoots everywhere doesn't solve racism or police brutality or homelessness or mental illness or trauma. But it is this one tool, this one small tool that represents, if nothing else, our ability to be creative in how we think about the systems around us. Like soap and a sponge, that works well for this. Let's save the hammer for the situations that need that the most. We we can train officers all day long, you know, on on mental health, on de-escalation. But at the end of the day, there's still not going to be the right resources sent into those situations. You know, we really... um, for me, what we're looking at here is, is reminds me a lot of, of, you know, the early days of emergency medicine, right? There was a point in time before we had paramedics, you know, before there were EMTs and ambulance companies, you know, and we were obligating police to be the ones to just toss you in the back of their patrol car and haul you off to the hospital. And then all of a sudden, you know, this, this new industry developed, right? You know, this new um, branch of public safety was, was created to respond to, to physical health needs. And we have this moment now to shift our thinking away from viewing mental health and addiction as a moral issue, recognize, you know, the reality that this is public health, you know, and and take the appropriate steps to address that in the public safety system. This is the kind of thing that, in a different context, you'll hear advocates for defunding police in Seattle say repeatedly. Often the context there isn't so much mental health and addiction as what they see as the root causes of crime. For example, poverty, a lack of opportunity, structural racism. 
if we met people's basic needs, they say, we'd need fewer police. Of course, that's way easier said than done. But some people say they know this to be true because they've seen it happen. And to them, having police around doesn't necessarily make them safer. Public safety ain't really public safety. Public safety is a prison industrial complex that has brought back Jim Crow and slavery, bro. And this is not a solution-based model of public safety. We've been indoctrinated to believing that all of our protection and community safety only can come from the police. That's next time on This Changes Everything. Thanks for listening to This Changes Everything. This episode was reported and produced by me, Sarah Bernard, with reporting assistance from David Croman. The story editor was Donna Blankenship, and the executive producer was Mark Baumgarten. Our cover art is by Greg Cohen. You can subscribe to This Changes Everything on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. And if you like the show, please rate and review us. It really helps other people find us. For more on This Changes Everything and other CrossCut podcasts, go to crosscut.com podcasts. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. This Changes Everything is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Sarah Bernard. You can listen to all of the episodes in this series right now at crosscut.com or wherever you get your podcasts.